does Marcellus Wallace look like? Yeah! What? What country you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. Check this out, right? They speak English and what? King the Crook. What? English, motherfucker. Do you speak it? Then you know what I'm saying. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. It's time for another episode of 252 with your hosts Frank G and Ralphie D. And today's special guests, Princess Crazy Girl, Professor Pat, and Igor Smeghead. Hello, hello. Oh, shit. Uh, what the hell is going on, guys? You in the car? Yeah. Careful, man. That means you're driving while black. That's a daily but. occurrence for me. <laughs> Wow, that was weird. I was listening to another podcast when you guys were calling in. That's funny. Uh, I, I listened to about a dozen podcasts, and um, I tell you what, man, I, I just put another one on my plate. Spent <laughs> my days listening to media. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you're in the car a lot. There's no music worth listening to anymore. What else are you going to do, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I don't even feel bad about knowing or about not knowing a new artist and stuff like that. I don't know what's going on with music now and when I'm in the car like with the kids and uh, I'll turn on the radio for them because well I guess I have to interact with them so I won't have my uh, <laughs> headphones in they know every song on the radio man they know every freaking song every Taylor Swift song they know it I'm like you ever sit there and be like how do you know this song <laughs> serious I do that I do that to my kid, and I'm like, how are you singing this? I don't know this song. Where did you hear this crap? Who put, who put this in front of you? I'm going to beat their ass, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, now take uh, that you know, Taylor Swift tape out and put that motorhead back on before I send you to your room, you know? <laughs> turning over in his grave right now. Yeah, Taylor Swift, dude. Well, I mean, I have daughters, and they love Taylor Swift. I, actually, my 12-year-old, she's kind of getting out of Taylor Swift six-year-old wow. man she is all about it and she likes the beeps too oh really well, that's cool that's that's it's yeah. made for people that age that's all right you know it's when people are like 24 and are really upset that zane left one direction or whatever you know it's like dude really man. none of us cried when donnie left the new kids you know it's <laughs> you know it just it wasn't a big deal yeah, I mean, we well, what was going on when Cube left N.W.A., but I mean, didn't, I didn't cry that much about it. Well, that's because real ninjas don't cry, you know. <laughs> yeah, I started multiplying just a couple of years after that, too. <laughs> <laughs> See, Easy e the great prophet of our time. So check this out. I was, I was thinking about Nobody Move, right? Well, first of all, just think about that, the whole... Mostly Easy, but NWA too. They were like mm-hmm. the, the lamest cautionary tale. Think about just nobody move. Just think how fucked up this bank uh-huh. robbery ends up being, right? The dude, right. <laughs> they break in. They're they're getting all the money. Then Easy E gets a hard yeah. on. Who gets a hard on in the middle of a bank robbery? <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> <laughs> Have sex with this woman, but she ends up having a dick. 
he didn't even do it. So, you know, that kind of exactly. takes away from how hardcore he is. Because, I mean, how hardcore is a guy to fuck a guy? You know, that's hardcore. <laughs> that's but hard. I fucked him anyway. That well, would have been hard. Oh, so, obviously, he still has a hard on, right? Or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But then the cops show up. And then gun won't even shoot, so then he gets arrested, and then that's the end of the song. I mean, what kind of... Well, maybe this song is just an allegory for the fact that he couldn't get it up once he noticed (laughs) that. My gap wouldn't fire, the shit wouldn't work, so... Oh, you know what time it is. Listen to the clean dope man I sent you the other day. The whole, you know, like they're trying to flip the tail there. And it, it, the right. same thing, yeah. he's trying to be moralistic towards through the whole thing, but then at the end he's like, Well, I'm the dope man, got caught selling crack. Now my face is in the dirt and the police is on my back. I used to sell coke every day on the streets. Now the child line is where I eat. So stop what you're doing, that ain't what it's about. Cause sooner or later it's gonna play out. There's money in the street, but I'll tell you what. Either dead or in jail is where you end up. I know for a fact that's how it could be. Hey, dope man. No, that's not me. Now to sell crack is not the move. I just did it for the girls called Money and Jews. I was the dope man, dope man. Easy. I see what you did there. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, all of them, right? Like, don't. They tried to sound like hard asses, but almost every song has some kind of a, you know, cautionary tale about... Right. Well, that's what I thought was funny, was that actual Dope Man is a cautionary tale about how that's a bad life to live. But the edited version is a, is not. It's like a thing's promoting it. It's like they flipped it around just to be assholes. I think that's great. Right. Like, nobody caught that at the time, you know? The clean version is the worst version. <laughs> it has a worse message. <laughs> it takes all the yeah. from the Midwest and it's like, this is the real shit right here. I'm saying. They're like, fuck Grandmaster Flash. This is the message right here. Sell crack, smoke drugs. Well, not too much of your own supply. <laughs> right. But if you aren't going to get to dust, get not by strawberry, but, you know, <laughs> one of the other hopes. <laughs> oh, my God. How to survive in South Central. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So what else is going on in the news? There's a bunch of soccer crap going on. I watched John Oliver. That's where I get my news now because I'm trying to, you know, get away from John Stewart. Uh, Yeah, you're trying to wean yourself off of JS. (laughs) Unless he got another couple of weeks or something. Right. He's got a couple weeks left, and uh, it's going to be sad. (laughs) The the next guy could be cool, though. He seems pretty funny on his stand-up I watched, so. Yeah, I watched that, too. That was pretty good. And uh, he's okay on the show, too. I like his uh, Though like he his kind style. of uh, he kind of reminds me of the, the first lawyer guy they had on Silver Spoons way back in the day. You know, like, he's got that sort of, like, off... <laughs> the guy with the tight curls. <laughs> yeah, the first the first one, yeah, where he was, like, kind of like... The what? darker guy, not the lighter guy. A few years ago, actually probably, like, five or six years ago, I kind of revisited it on a... YouTube or something, and uh, it's not that good. <laughs> I'm gonna preserve the well, memories. <laughs> I think it depends too on how old you are, because it definitely is dated as all hell, you know. And the yeah, Ricker is uh, certainly a product of the mid '80s. He couldn't have existed in any other decade, because people would have beat his ass. You, you rich fucker, <laughs> kick your fucking ass, and take your dish. <laughs> you know? Silver spoons would have been a tale about a kid getting his ass beat daily if it came out in the 2000s. <laughs> or like that Dave Chappelle's The Real Real World. <laughs> 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 These are all my homies. They just got out of prison. 
Top five yeah. members. Dylan, 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 Dylan. Oh, yeah. That oh. was good shit right there. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah, I missed that guy when he wasn't crazed. <laughs> Are you, uh, I ran into him like a month after he uh, retired, so to speak. Nice. Uh, he was hanging out with, uh, uh, what's his name? Who's the rapper that had like, this small movie career for Most of them? I see. Oh, hey, most deaf, deaf yeah. Most deaf, yeah. They were driving around on scooters, like old people scooters uh, in San Francisco. <laughs> it was crazy. It was pretty funny. I'm like, are you? And he's all, uh-huh. You know, just like, don't don't say too much, kid. <laughs> it was pretty cool. But like, you know, a couple of days later, I'm reading in Time Magazine. Now he had that meltdown and everything. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I watched last night, ironically, was uh, Men in Tights. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it, I, and I actually really focused on uh, Chappelle and his uh, scenes when they're doing, like, the, the chorus line dancing and everything, and he's out there doing it. <laughs> it's, it's funny as hell when you think about, you know, him, his life and everything, his career, and he's out there doing the chorus line stuff. I thought it was... I mean, I still thought it was cool, but, you know, like, hey, that's young Dave. You're young, you gotta do that shit. Yeah, about it. And that's what I tell all my hoes. <laughs> young, you gotta do that shit for money. Hey. We're doing better than we were when we were 15. We can't deny that part. <laughs> oh, for sure. I was not getting any back then. And I tell you what, you can either have the pussy or the money. <laughs> you can't have both. <laughs> Well, I won't be satisfied till I get the pussy, the money, and the mic. And I'm straight. Exactly. Yeah. So wait, you're gay until you get all three of those things, or what? <laughs> uh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm on my way to uh, old black mandom. So at some point, I'm going to be wearing hats all the time. And I'm just going to shake everybody's hand and be friendly, old black man, until I get pissed off. And then I'm going to rail on the government and white people and stuff. Not you guys, but everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> when Flavor Flav dies, we're not going to be surprised. <laughs> because I know. He's probably going to Bridget Nielsen's sitting on top of him. Wait, Flavor Flav's not dead? <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, he could be Zombie Flav at this point. Zombie he died somewhere around 84 and put on the sunglasses and the clock so we would never see the difference. There's a big bullet hole in his chest, you know. Well, the clock is hiding a, uh, what's, what's the, uh, the clock is hiding a Glock? No, the clock's hiding a oh, right. dark power source. The power source. <laughs> <laughs> the flux capacitor in his chest. He's been, uh, animated by, uh, what, what's his name? The Muppet People. <laughs> They've been animating his ass for this long. <laughs> The Jim <laughs> Studios. There's just Frank Oz walking around with his hand up his ass all day, right? There. All right, which character are we gonna bring to life today? Yoda, uh, Jabba the Hut, or Flavor Flav? I, I am walking around my neighborhood with my hand in the air. <laughs> I'm not waving it like I just don't care. But. Somebody say, oh yeah! oh yeah, and you don't stop. <laughs> People are already like, look, there's a halfway. Mm -hmm. you know, old black man. <laughs> I know. He's walking around yelling at his phone with his hand in the air. <laughs> God, no word but damn reception bars. I just got down. Yeah.
get, get the good voice <laughs> going. Boy, go get me some rabbit ears and some aluminum foil. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pick up last week's NWA retrospective where we left off. Next thing you know, walk into the record store as we did several times every week. Big blue 12-inch with three pictures of Eazy-E on it. No way! There's a new Eazy-E? Alright, don't have to think twice about this. Grab that. We're going to buy it. Bought the Easy does it Not even the 12-inch that day, actually, but the maxi single, the cassette. Which, as it turns out, was the best version of that single because it's the only place in the entire world that you can get the original version of Compton's in the house. The version on the Straight Outta Compton album is a remix and is not as good as the original. But the original version has lines about, on your cassette, we're here to rock ya. Put that on an LP or a CD, somebody's gonna go, ah, uh, this isn't a cassette. You know, because people do stuff like that. So we got the Easy Does It single. I've never heard it before. It's now early 1988, like early, early January. So bring this back. It's in one of those cassette single O cards, not even a real case. So rip off the plastic wrap, throw the cassette in the deck, and hit play. What's the first thing that comes out of the Easy Does It single? He was once a thug from around the way. Easy! But you should... Bitch, shut the fuck up. Get the fuck out of here. Yo, Dre. What's up? Give me a funky-ass bass line. What the fuck is us in the place to be? Coming on the mic, it's easy, motherfucking easy. Dre is on the beat, yellow's on the cut. So listen up close while we rip shit up. Shit up. Well, I'm easy E, I got bitches galore. You might have a lot of bitches, but I got much more. With my super duper group coming out the shoot. Easy E, motherfuckers, cold knocking the boots. Cause I'm a hot thugster. I used to be a monster. If you hurt, you think I own a drugstore. Getting stupid because I know how. And if a sucker talks shit, I give him up. There was no turning back from this point we're now huge easy e fans so far what had been released was the boys in the hood fat girl 12 inch from easy e the panic zone dope man eight ball 12 inch from nwa and then the nwa and the posse compilation which put those two 12 inches on there and some songs from the doc's crew the feel the fresh crew and uh you know the rappenstein song and uh is that it? I think that is it. It's NWA, Easy e Feel the Fresh Crew, and that one Rappenstein song, which they replaced on the CD with A Bitch is a Bitch. First Easy did a release, then NWA did a release. And now we've got Easy Does It. The single, not the album. Four songs. Easy Does It, Ruthless Villain, Radio, and Compton's in the House. And at the end of the single version of Easy Does It, he says, And if y'all want to hear some more, Buy the fucking album, bitch. Bitch, 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 bitch. See, the single came before the album. Now, the next thing that came out, right around a month later, probably three weeks, knowing the way they release records, was the Gangsta Gangsta 12-inch. 
Again, I bought the cassette first and bought the LP later. But the Gangsta Gangsta 12-inch had five songs from the upcoming Straight Outta Compton album. Uh, awesome sneak preview. So we bought that. So we're buying these things as soon as they come out in order. Okay, that's what's important here. So Easy Does It, single. Gangsta Gangsta single. And then, now we're in February 1988, Easy Does It, the album comes out. I was in school one day. I saw a bunch of people with the tape. We went home that day. I gathered all my singles and all the quarters and stuff I had. I put the quarters into a, like a prescription pill bottle and got on the bus, rode up to the warehouse and pissed off the clerk by getting the Easy Does It tape and giving him you know, four singles and then you know, $5 in coins. But the guy counted it all up. I had enough, as I knew. And you know, we walked out of there with that tape. February 1988. We go home. We listen to the entire thing. It's awesome. There's even a remix of Boys in the Hood on there in which he says he was listening to Gangsta Gangsta. See, so they're sort of tying this all together thematically. Now, one record mentions the previous record. They're building a continuity. So Easy Does It 12-inch, Gangsta Gangsta 12-inch. Now, both of those, Easy and NWA, have singles out baiting you for the upcoming album. Still in February 88, maybe two weeks after the Gangsta Gangsta 12-inch, the Easy Does It LP drops. Now, this makes sense when you think about timing. Six weeks after the Easy Does It single, the album came out. That's how they do things. So I got the album, loved it. It was the best thing we'd ever heard, and we played it nonstop. And about a month later, it's mid-March 1988, Ralph shows up at school and says, check this out. And he's got the NWA straight out of Compton cassette. The real thing. Not some crazy dub, not a mixtape, not a weird thing that someone said is something and clearly is not. He's got a manufactured, professional, real cassette of Stray Outta Compton. No way! Where'd you get that? You got it at the warehouse. Not the one at the mall, the good one. Alright, cool. As soon as school gets out, I'm running down there. School gets out, head over to the warehouse. They say, no, we don't have that. That's not coming out for another few weeks. There's no way. I said, man, my friend bought it here yesterday. I said, no, we don't have that. It didn't go on sale here. Well, what had happened was that someone there had opened up a box and stocked the stuff on the shelf. You know, they just didn't notice the little tag that said not for release until whatever date. Because you know what? They didn't really care much about street dates back then because there weren't people queuing up to buy things the second they were released like they do now. There weren't midnight Monday sales for Tuesday releases in 1987-88. That stuff started very literally in 1991 with Metallica, Guns N' Roses, and stuff of that sort. They didn't do it before that. So the store says they never sold it, yet I know they did because I've seen one. So fine, you're not going to convince them to break their policy and sell you a tape. I have to come back in three weeks. But in those three weeks, I will be listening to the tape I just dubbed from Ralph's copy. Made one for me, Pat made one for himself. We're good, we all have the album. I still have the copy I dubbed from his cassette that day. It's on a red TDK cheap-ass 
you know, normal bias cassette, and the label still says NWA, straight out of Compton, and then a little parentheses at the end, 3 slash 88. 3 slash 88, because I had made the dub in March 1988. So Easy Does It, the album, comes out in February 88. Straight out of Compton, the album, comes out in March 88. Now here's where the problem with Wikipedia comes in. Wikipedia says that Easy Does It came out on September 16th, 1988. Now that may be true on a national scale. It didn't get everywhere across the U.S. until September 16th. In fact, that's probably, and what I think happened, that's the release date of the CD. Now, when it came out in February, there were LPs and cassettes. They couldn't afford to press CDs yet. Same thing with NWA. When it came out in March, there were LPs and cassettes. There were no CDs. Now, we bought the CD version way later. And it was exciting when it showed up. It's like, wow, they finally had enough money to press CDs. They must be selling some tapes. I used to save all my receipts every time I bought music. The warehouse used to give those cool receipts that looked like a big paycheck. And I'd stuff them all in a binder. Again, something that was thrown away when not paying attention to mom. I could solve this quite easily by pulling out the receipts and saying, look at the dates. But unfortunately, that has been lost to time. The thing that does remain that can definitively prove the fact that Easy came out before NWA are the catalog numbers on the albums themselves. Priority Records was a young label. They were mostly doing compilations. Remember things like Rap Masters Volume 1 through 15 or whatever they had there? Rap's Greatest Hits. You know, they were the KTEL of rap at the time. They had just assigned the Ruthless Records imprint label its own code. Take a look at your Easy Does It album on any format you like. Its catalog number is 57100, 57100. Now pick up your Straight Outta Compton album. Its catalog number is 57102. Now which of those things do you think was released first, considering the fact that labels release product in consecutive order? 57100 came out first, and 57102 came out later. Matter of fact, uh, Easy E, if you go to 57111, was the clean version. And their radio edits weren't just beeps and scratches, they redid the lyrics for almost every song. If you've never heard the radio edits of both of those albums, you should check them out. They're really quite different. So, Wikipedia has Easy Does It coming out September 16th, 1988. And then you click to Straight Out of Compton, and it says that it came out on August 8th, 1988. Wikipedia says that Straight Outta Compton came out before Easy Does It, and it's absolutely not true. It also doesn't make any sense. They were pushing Easy. NWA was the group that featured Easy E. Why would it feature Easy E if no one had heard of Easy E yet? No, they promoted Easy, got him popular, and then debuted his crew. You know, as far as the the national release is concerned. We were already up on all of this stuff. I'm pretty sure the dates they have in there are the dates that the CDs came out and the entire product was available from coast to coast. Because when I came here to Michigan in the summer of 1988, no one had heard of NWA or EZE. I basically brought that stuff with me. I'm not responsible for its spreading, 
but I certainly spread it to a certain portion of southeast Michigan. You know, I gave it to my friend, he gave it to his friends, they gave it to their friends. That's, that planted the seed because the next summer when I came back here, NWA was huge. I was a year ahead because I was on the west coast. While essentially there's no way for me to prove this at this point, we all have the same collective memory of it being available prior to the dates that are listed. We all have the same collective memory of Easy's tape being out before NWAs, and we all remember them releasing and pulling the NWA tape, which may not have been just at our warehouse, but might have actually been a chain-wide policy thing, where everybody released them, they thought the date was one thing, but it was really something else. They might have even been released and then the label itself said, wait, we want to pull that to give more time for Easy's album to take off. You know, the delay between Ralph's copy and the actual copies available in stores was about three or four weeks. You know, I definitely had it by the time school ended that summer. That, and that's the thing. We definitely, definitely had it before the summer. So if I had it in the summer of 1988, how exactly could it have come out in September? See, there's no way. You know, something that you are listening to in June 1988 cannot be released in August or September of 1988 unless you're an insider. And really, I, I, as much as I would have loved to be, I was not at the time. Now, later on, I got to hear some interesting things from Dr. Dre. Got to meet Dre one time when he came in to work with George Clinton while being a big fan and not wanting to bother him. I did get to talk a little bit and found out some funny stuff. The short version of that story is that Easy e was not a particularly talented rapper. Now, if you listen to his stuff after he left Dre, you're not going to disagree with that statement. He went from being really cool to being bleh almost overnight. Well, what happened there? Well... Easy e could never rap. It's not like he lost his skill. Ice Cube would write the rhymes. Ice Cube would go in the booth and record the song and then give Easy a cassette and say, here, go learn this. Make it sound just like this. Easy would listen to it and memorize it just like you would do if you were listening. Ice Cube writes the rhymes that I say, hail to the from CIA. And then he'd go in the booth and deliver a perfect imitation of Ice Cube, or a perfect imitation of the DOC. Listen to those first two early Easy e releases and see how much you can hear Ice Cube in there. I mean, it's obvious when you know about it. You know, he is being Ice Cube, it's just Easy's voice. That's a testament to the production skills of Dr. Dre. It wasn't about having the most talented artists. It was about putting together the best presentation. E Easy had the look. And he had that voice. Skill was unimportant. You know, skill can be manufactured in the studio. You don't think that's true? Take a look at the charts today. There's almost no talent or skill anywhere except in the hands of the producer. It's computers, 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 and you know, a pretty girl as the front piece or an attractive guy, depending on what you're listening to. But the same thing, the music, the talent is secondary. The look comes first. If nothing else, the nerdy guys will turn in to listen to me talk about porn. That's true. 
<laughs> you know, I prefer the, the the ones with two girls in a shower. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys watch porn together? I don't, but I know some do. Like, I think that's weird. We never did. I don't remember. I remember us all watching the same porn, but not together. All right. Like, we, you guys all, all shared one when it was on VHS? Yeah, we all copied the same tapes from each other. Like, look what I stole but, from my dad's private stash in the back of his drawer. I don't remember. I, I remember one time watching part of a porno with one of my friends once, but I think that was the very first time we ever got our hands on one at all. But I've never, since I've been, you know, known how things work, I, I've never done anything like that. <clears throat> but yeah, I know some people that, that do, so... Yeah. It's not weird to them. <laughs> you know, every weekend, me and my three girlfriends, we hang out, and the four of us have a four-way in the shower. I knew it. Mm-hmm. See, dudes, it was, it was true all along, guys. We have pillow fights in our little, in our little bras and panties, and, and then we take showers together and lather each other up. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the pizza dude shows up. <laughs> when in reality we're sitting there in like our sweatpants and <laughs> yeah eating, eating a carton of ice cream I, with yeah. a big wooden spoon <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah i've seen i've seen actual girls yeah I, like my friend's sisters when we were kids too like uh, you're not dainty you're like a dude in nicer clothes you know <laughs> You can come over and check out my three record players. Cool. <laughs> you can do some like you know, things with three turntables. Or sure. No. You, see, you've already got the headset. I you got the turntables. You're almost all you need to do is point a video at you and hit play on a CD or whatever, and and turn some knobs, and you can be a DJ. Ooh. You watch some of the expensive, you know, the people who make 10000 bucks for doing a DJ gig. Right. And you, if you look at their video, like, there's usually somebody, like, in the crew who's behind them shooting sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if you look, they're faking, you know, because their entire set is pre-recorded, right? Right. It's, that's how you do it. So they go there and they hit play and then they stand there and they, you know, pantomime. They put the hand over a knob and look like you're turning it and move, look like you're moving this shit. And, you know, you just move your hands to the beat pretty much. So it looks like you're doing things, but you're never actually doing anything because it's all pre, you know, pre-planned. Okay. So pretty and much like, you just push this. play on your program and it does everything and you just pretend to be doing it. Exactly. And they make a ton of money to do that. And you're like, man... See, they just redid It's So Cold in the D, and they auto-tuned that girl so she actually sounds decent. And you're like, first of all, congratulations, because that was hard. Right. You know, s- secondly, this sucks now, because the fact that it sucked was the only reason it was good. <laughs> 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 now, if she sounds like she's sincerely trying, that just makes this a sad effort. You know? Right. The music and everything is you know, undeniably better than it used to be. However, this sucks more. <laughs> you know? But, you know, the thing that's funny is that, you know, a joke aside, and we all have recorded shitty tracks and artists like that in our studio days, but as funny as it may be, she's about to, you know, she's got paid from that just a little bit, but it's now like a well-known thing, you know, like that melody caught on, just the the little hook, you know, obviously not the 
babbling rap part. You know, the hook has caught on that people that know it, uh, you know, nationwide. They get that as a joke or whatever, but it's still you're still listening to her sing. Mm. It's actually a good thing for the artist herself because it it will never be she'll never have a hit record, but that slogan is going to be used for a bunch of shit. <laughs> if she if she trademarked it, she's going to get paid. If she didn't and someone else did it afterwards, she got screwed. But you never know. Oh, so you're going to teach me how to rap? Uh, we could have Sal teach you how to rap. It's even better. I can help. Can we turn "Let It Go" into a rap song? Sure. Probably has been done already. Mm-hmm. You mean Disney doesn't like sharing its shit? Not on something with our tone is what it would come down to. You know, if you were a Disney princesses themed show, they would probably be somewhat tolerant of that to a very, very small degree. Mm-hmm. But, but on a show where you're talking about all kinds of things and are cursing and stuff, and you no, know, they wouldn't like that at all. Yet they signed us as ICP to a Disney label, so, you know. <laughs> and then they said, well, we didn't know. Like, Bullshit, you didn't know. Made us change a bunch of words. Oh, poor you. Actually, that record, uh, it's still the best one they put out, but it, it's not as good as it should have been because most of the real versions don't exist except on our drives. It's like, well put those out now as like a de- as they probably could when's the deluxe 20th anniversary next year they'll probably double disc it and put the real thing out finally <laughs> if they have if they have enough and yeah, they have enough money so yeah so that was a bit disappointing when you spend a year and a half working on something and then in the last three weeks somebody changes all of it you know yeah that would suck but yeah, I still I I never bought the, the real thing when it came out. When I hear the the real thing someplace once in a while, I'm like, what the hell is it? I don't know the words of this song because they changed all this shit, and I don't know what's. <laughs> I'm saying the real shit, and I don't know what this pussified version is. But this sucks, you know. Oh. Well, they made him take out any references to killing. Oh. And it's like well. Did you not ever listen to any of their stuff? Why did you even... It's like they're murderous clowns. What the fuck is he supposed to talk about? So, you know, instead of hitting somebody with an axe, he's going to smack them with a a rock or something and, like, changing all the words to just the stupid shit that didn't make any sense. Oh. Like, this is what you put in the Kmart version for the one that gets no sticker on it, you know? It's not what you (laughs) put on the actual album. (laughs) Oh... Don't be making fun of the Kmarts. Somebody asked the other day, do they still make Kmart versions of albums? And I said, you know, I don't know. Probably not, as far as... Because people now don't care as much as they used to about there being a word or two in there. I think I'm too white to rap. Oh, uh, no. I, I, I've, there's a lot of uh, more white people than you that could do it, so I think you'd be okay. I've worked with the whitest rapper <coughs> of all time, and you're not that guy. So Mm-mm. you're you're safe. If, as long as you're not Danny Kay, you're safe. Uh, I should put a Danny Kay segment in the show because like 12 people would be like, "Fuck yeah, Danny Kay," Mm-mm. and everybody else would be like, "No, please don't do that to us." He actually had a Metro Times. Uh, he's he's gotten famous for being persistent, basically. Oh. His stuff was so bad when he first started and 
that we like passed it around like you've got to listen to this like this is what not to do it's just like check this out this dude paid money to come do this shit you know and then like he kept coming back and doing more you know and actually releasing the like dude why are you putting this out you know nobody's gonna buy this crap and nobody uh, did and now if you have the danny k definitely deaf ep it's like 200 bucks uh, like we had boxes of them we couldn't give away <laughs> Sitting home thinking how to rock it, then it came to me as a sudden shock. That's a right around my bust every word right on time. time, time, time. The hip hop began this climb, must have been early about 79. DJs cut records while MCs bust the rhymes. Hip hop, hip hop is us to the top. Hip hop is us where to the top. Seven and stop to see hip hop rising up the billboard chart. Hip hop men and names getting wild, respectable fame. 252. Daddy. Yes, son. What does regret mean? Well, son, a funny thing about regret is that it's better to regret something you have done than to regret something you haven't done. And by the way, if you see your mom this weekend, would you be sure and tell her, Satan, Satan, Satan. That was Sweat Loaf by the Butthole Surfers. I remember the first time I heard that, I didn't know if it was just a, a cheap Black Sabbath parody or if it was a stroke of genius. It kind of bordered between the two. My friend worked at a duplicating plant that duplicated cassettes for Touch and Go. So he was always bringing home cassettes his job was to listen to the cassettes as quality control so he would have to pull six cassettes off the line at random listen to them end to end make sure there weren't clicks pops wrinkles in the tape songs cut short etc and uh so since they had touch and go i had access to meat men i had access to butthole surfers they did a lot of the budget sell your cassettes at the gas station stuff like patsy klein's greatest hits and stuff too and some runoff for mca but when i heard the butthole surfers i was like what the hell is that he's like here dude i brought you some cassettes and it was pussy horse rembrandt locust borscht technician and psychic powerless another man's sack so the first thing i had to do was start racking them up and listening to them and that was the beginning of my listening to the butthole surfers i couldn't believe it because these guys were so out there i mean you're talking mid to late 80s uh the punk thing it kind of wound down it was very anticlimactic there was a lot of hair bands and a lot of british pop dominating the mtv airwaves so this was like a breath of fresh air so i started doing a little reading and when I found out the guys lived on a ranch in Texas and had a cat named Mark Farner, hey, I was sold. But I've, I've never been, like, heavy, heavy duty into the butthole surfers. 
So I don't know their history like I might know other bands. I know the anecdotal and the uh, via rumor type stuff, stuff I read over the years. But when I was, Frank asked me to uh, talk about this a little bit, I remember um, I was looking up how they got their name because I was quite curious. And I guess the song Butthole Surfer they had prior to being the band and they went to play for somebody and the guy didn't know how to introduce them so he introduced them as the butthole surfers and it stuck ladies and gentlemen <laughs> the butthole surfers butthole surfers kick ass but what was hilarious is some of their earlier names they used to play under they used to rotate their name just about every show would be different they played as the dick clark five nine centimeter worm makes its own food the vodka family winston's ashtray baby heads Ed Asner is gay, Fred Astaire's asshole, the right to eat Fred Astaire's asshole, the inalienable right to eat Fred Astaire's asshole. And obviously, Butthole Surfers was a little more tame than uh, eating Fred Astaire's asshole, but it did cause problems over the year with them getting press because a lot of people were hung up on printing Butthole as a headline or anything, so... They would abbreviate it, you know, BH Surfers or BHS, and didn't really do a whole lot for them. One thing I did really like about the Buttholes is, one, the creativity, but they were recording on a budget by definition. I mean, like their first album, I remember reading uh, stories and seeing Gibby on a couple uh, interviews say that there's some drum tracks on their first album that, they had an eight track and they really didn't have access to a good a mixing board, just the tape machine. So they would plug in a mic right directly into the back of the tape machine and record like a snare drum. And then they'd play it back and record like kick drum. And then they record it back and record like a cymbal to get the drum track. So some of the stuff's out of whack and a little bit out of sync, but that just adds to the to their music. Hey, buddy, you think this guy's gonna check? Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, it's like the name of their band is Butthole Surfers, and like chicks probably don't like that. <laughs> yeah, but they probably like tell chicks they're in Motley Crue. Another cool thing about the Buttholes is they really were the starving artist type. They didn't compromise. They didn't sell out right away, anyway. And I don't know that they did in the end because I think they just needed to make some money, but. Gibby even said from the beginning they were in it because they wanted to make some money. He was an accountant at a, one of the bigger accounting firms in Texas, if not the country, and he was playing in the band at night, and actually I guess he had left something out of questionable taste on the copier one night uh, when he was copying stuff for a show, and got in trouble and got relieved of his employment but i mean the guy's smart he was he went you know he graduated college he was on the basketball team and stuff and uh, so this was kind of a departure from what society would expect from the guy but anyway what's uh one thing that i always appreciate about him is if a bootleg started circulating that they thought might cut into their tape sales the first thing they would do is get a hold of a copy, the best copy of it they could, and they would go remix it and clean it up, and they would re-release it with cover art that was similar to the original 
but with their own flair. And they would um, start selling the bootleg. So that way, basically, they flooded the bootleg market with bootlegs of their own making. So that was taking the money away from the bootlegger, making it less profitable for them, which I thought was a cool business move. Another thing that's probably worth mentioning is Gibby, during the wall and the surfer stuff, um, Gibby joined up with Flea and Johnny Depp, and I think Steve Jones from the Pistols was in it, for a side project called P, just the letter P. Gotta hear their version of Dancing Queen, it is so awesome. Having the time of your life See that girl Watch that scene Dig in the dance Like everything else Gibby puts his distinct spin on it You know it's him I was really like most People who were Buttholes fans I kind of followed them through Electric Larry Land, and once a major label picked them up, and they did that. I first time I heard that on the radio, I was like, "Oh my God, is that Gibby?" And then, yeah, it was Gibby, and it's like really Pepper. I guess you got to make money, but I was really kind of disappointed. I mean, I knew they did the Jack Officer stuff. You know, he also did stuff with. Uh, Uncle Al from Ministry. I've read about Gibby and Al Jorgensen sitting around spending like six or eight hours blasted out of their gourds discussing the future of clear spiders from outer space and what might happen if clear spiders from outer space were to take over and discussing headlines and stuff. But they've definitely had an influence on many other bands, whether directly or indirectly. I got to say, it, they were one of those bands that were fun to pull out of your collection when people came over, especially if you figure, you know, when they were doing some of this stuff, you're talking about Van Hagar was at their peak and, uh, you know, Poison and Two Live Crew and I'm trying to think, you know, Aerosmith's comeback, if that's what you want to call it. And there was just a lot of uninteresting things on radio a lot of overproduced sugar-coated stuff so when when the buttholes came along it was awesome because i'd have a bunch of people over and you know we'd be listening to whatever's blasting out of the stereo and then i would slip in something like lady sniff and they would just like what the hell is that
the thing was is listening to the buttholes to me was like a train wreck you couldn't look away you, you know some of it was really uncomfortable to listen to like some of hairway to steven i still kind of cringe at but i can't stop listening to it because it's intriguing enough and interesting enough to draw you in butthole surfers yeah 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> these guys got their name from me no way! Uh, no way, this is a butthole surfer. Your name's Butthead. Oh, yeah. Who remembers this sound? Or this one? Everybody remembers this. Well, you do if you're over 35 anyway. People under 35 might have absolutely no idea what any of these sounds are. Before we had stores filled to the ceiling with video games, we used to play electronic games. What's the difference between an electronic game and a video game? Well, electronic games were small, portable, little handheld devices usually. Some of them had to sit on a table. It was almost like a Game Boy. Except you couldn't change out the cartridge and play a different game. Most of them had LEDs, some of them had LCDs, but basically you were playing with a bunch of little lights moving around on a painted screen that sort of resembled a baseball diamond or a basketball court or a bowling alley or whatever. And you had to use your imagination to fill in the blanks. One of the first games I ever remember playing, around the same time I was playing Shoots and Ladders in Candyland, was Merlin. Merlin's a game that you can play, you can play it six different ways. Some like to play at tic-tac-toe, others can test their skill at echo. Some play a tune on Music Machine or try to play Blackjack 13. Merlin is six electronic games in one. It's really fun for most everyone in the family. Six pen light batteries not included. With lights and sounds. Six games in one. Merlin's a game that's lots of fun. Merlin, six electronic games in one. From Parker Brothers. Remember this thing? It sort of looks like the 1978 idea of what a futuristic telephone might look like. Merlin came out in 1978 from Parker Brothers, known for making board games like Sorry and Payday. And like all the other toy manufacturers of the time, they were jumping onto these electronic games. I think I probably pretended Merlin was a telephone as much as I ever played the actual games on it, but some of them were a lot of fun. The tic-tac-toe game was pretty cool, especially when you're little. You could beat the computer on that one, too. It wasn't the usual unfair electronic tic-tac-toe where there's no chance you're ever going to win even once. Merlin's tic-tac-toe was at least somewhat fair. It not only looked like a telephone, but it had a keypad that was laid out sort of like a telephone as well. There were basically these little touch membrane buttons. They weren't really buttons you had to press in. You just had to touch it the right way. And as you press them, they would light up and make a sound, also like a telephone would. You'd get nine different tones for the nine different buttons. One of the games that was in it was called Music Machine, and you could program in up to, I don't know, maybe 48 notes. It, was, it wasn't very many. But you could write a little tune with you know, the nine notes that were on your virtual Merlin keyboard and the, the very basic sequencer that was built into this thing. It was very basic in that it was just real time. If you played notes, it played them back. That's, that's how it worked. It did not have any sort of editing features or time correction. It just 
recorded what you did and spit it back out. It does say 1978 Parker Brothers. Merlin, to begin any game, press New Game, then select. Button 1, Tic-Tac-Toe. Button 2, Music Machine. Button 3, Echo. That's the Simon sort of game. Select level of difficulty 1 through 9. So it basically got faster and a little bit tougher as you went up. Button 4, Blackjack 13, which is just like Blackjack 21, except you're playing the 13 instead. Button 5 is Magic Square, and that's where you're trying to light all the lights at once. And button 6 is Mindbender. I don't think I ever understood what you were supposed to do. Now this Merlin that I have is actually in fairly decent shape. It's not brand new looking. It's been used for, uh, oh, 37 years. So the fact that it even turns on is a miracle, but it's, it's in pretty decent shape. does not have six double A's in it at the moment. And it could use a bit of a dusting, but overall you know, it still functions. I had a lot of Merlins that I broke, destroyed, and used as Star Trek phasers after they were broken. You could do a lot of cool stuff with a broken Merlin, but you couldn't play any of the games with a broken Merlin, so how that. You know. Released at the same time as the Merlin, Wildfire was Parker Brothers' attempt at electronic pinball. This thing was my absolute favorite thing ever when I was six. When I was in my 30s, I found one on eBay in the box for like two bucks. I immediately ordered it, and when it showed up at the house, it wasn't exactly working. I already had one that didn't work that I got from Tone G back in the day. He didn't want it because it didn't work, so I'll take that. I think I also have his head-to-head -head football sitting here. So now I had two wildfires that didn't work. I decided to show my kid how to solder something, so we took apart one of the broken wildfires, and started to hack at it. Well, basically, the only thing that was ever wrong with it was that someone had dropped it or smacked it or whatever, maybe gotten it wet. The battery connection had been severed. So about 30 seconds later, and then deciding to avoid the need for six double A's, I just wired in a nine volt holder, popped a nine volt on there, and the wildfire turned right on. And as soon as I heard it, I was six again. Like That was the sound. I remember that so well, and I hadn't heard it for probably 30 years. Oh, easily. I hadn't heard it for 35 years. So this was like going back to being a little kid immediately. So I played and played and played the wildfire. I discovered as an adult that wildfire was far more difficult than it had been when I was six. I used to be really good at this, but now I could barely get anything going at all. Still, it was good to be six again, if only for a few minutes. These games were released in order to cash in on the popularity of other games at the time. The most popular electronic handheld game ever, I would assume, Mattel Football. The classic football was the little white one. A lot of people had Football 2, which had nicer buttons and was green. But either way, either of those games, the old-fashioned classic football where you're one dot running to the other side of the screen over and over and over until you hear the touchdown sound, every company everywhere that made anything electronic in the late 70s, early 80s made one of these machines. You could get electronic football from Sears, from Pennies, Radio Shack, definitely. Mine was Radio Shack. I absolutely had a Tandy electronic quarterback. They were all variations on electronic football, quarterback, touchdown, you know, they only had four or five names. Each one had a somewhat funky design, but mostly you could tell that they were knockoffs of the original Mattel. Mine was a little bit bigger, which actually was kind of cool as a kid, because I had big-ass hands for a kid, and a lot of the stuff that they made for kids had buttons that were way too small for me. 
So thanks to Radio Shack for putting out the uh, the slightly bigger-handed model. I missed that thing. I'd like to find another one of those Tandys. One of these days I'll probably wind up ordering one of them. But I'll have to look it up again because I forgot which one it was. <laughs> There's like six or seven different Tandy electronic football things because every year, just like they do with Madden, they'd release a new one. Now, they weren't updating the stats back then. I have no idea why we needed a new one every year. And most people did not buy a new one every year. But they put one out. Maybe they were only making a certain amount per year and selling through and then having to make new ones. Who knows? When I was seven, I had a babysitter. The only time I ever had a babysitter, I was, from the time I was six until I was seven. At one point, I can't even tell the story of how I wound up having to go to the babysitter's house after school. Let's just say that the babysitter that was hired didn't do a very good job and I wound up with her mom watching me instead. So anyway, I'm being watched at this lady's house. I'm there for three, four hours a day and her kids are out doing whatever the heck, but she has a son who's maybe five, six years older than me. This kid had this handheld game that was just barely handheld. I suppose it really belonged on a table, but we would hold it. It was about the size of your computer keyboard. You'd have to hold it the long way, so you know, turn your keyboard sideways and hold it in two hands, and imagine that as, a, as an electronic game that resembled a bowling alley. And you had you know, 11 or 12 buttons across the bottom. So you could select your curve and your strength and which way the ball was going to go, just like you would with a video game now. But they had just a little LED screen again with little you know, pictures of pins that would light up and a little tiny bowler that would go different speeds across the top of the thing. So it was basically a, a timing game. Can you match the timing and push the button at exactly the right time to make this thing go up and knock down all the pins? This thing was great. I saw this and I said, dude, I need that. But you know what? These things were not cheap. You look at them now and you go, oh, well, it was 10 bucks or something. Well, first of all, even if it was 10 bucks, 10 bucks was a lot of money in 1978. But they weren't $10. They were thirty dollars you know, some of them were even more so in order to get Bolatronic it was going to be a birthday thing <laughs> I got it for my eighth birthday which was probably about the end of the line for the electronic games because the video games were well in place at that point around the same time I was getting the Bolatronic we could already get the ColecoVision the Atari 5200 we were onto the early 8-bit systems. By the time Bolatronic was around in, say, 81, Atari was out for, what, four years? Either way, you could already play Space Invaders and Asteroids and all this stuff at home, and it didn't matter because Bolatronic was still cool. How many people had an Entech Space Invader? The classic black Space Invader game where you had the two orange buttons to move left and right and the other button to shoot. And that's all it was. I used to sit in the closet and play that game for, I don't know, until people would yell at me to get out of there. Because it was dark. All you could see was the game and you could just sit in there and you could hit the buttons and it was just perfect because you had the noise and the lights and it was glowing and you are pushing stuff and nobody could bother you and everybody left you the hell alone. That does it for another episode of 252. Send us your comments at retronerds252 at gmail.com or via the social media links on our website at retronerds252.com. Thanks for listening. We leave you today with a bit of Beatallica.
Mm -hmm. I, I'm Donna. Pull yourself together.